Welcome to Bull and Bear Crypto. My name is James Gore, and today we have a special guest, Mr. David Bell, um, founder of Macrodesiac and UK, UK Growth Director over at TradingView. Um, David, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, no problem. Um, so I thought it'd be nice for you to introduce yourself to people or my audience that might not know uh, who you are, what you do, and what Macrodesiac is. Yes, yeah, so um, I am David, obviously. Um, I founded Macrodesiac last year, back in January 2019, because basically I was um, I was working at a brokerage and I was putting stuff out on LinkedIn pretty much every day. And the feedback that I was receiving from people who might have been in the market, you know, 20, 30 years longer than, than I was, was really good. And then a couple of them told me to to actually charge for my views, as they, you know, you, you have to do now under under MIFID rules um, if you're, you know, providing sell side research, for example. Um, so I did, and you know, I, I focus it towards retail investors, retail traders, because I feel that the that not necessarily education, I don't want to call it that, but everything's focused in the retail sphere towards looking at charts and doing technicals. And my thinking is just that markets, you know, markets aren't around simply to adhere to technicals, you know. Markets are there to um, facilitate transactions based on things that are occurring in economies. Mm. So, for example, you know, people might do analysis of, let's say, gold. Mm. Now, gold's not really going up because it's bounced off of a support level, although, you know, it might be a valid um, reason to buy gold for that reason um, it's, it's probably going up due to a few other factors you know maybe the dollar's weaker because of certain um, dollar fundamentals or uh, you know maybe there's an inflation hedge or something like that going on so um, I, I just found that a lot of people are getting sucked into looking at charts and um, when that happens your, your, your own biases enter into things and uh, I just thought that taking a step back allowing people to really understand, you know, key market drivers in a really conversational, simple voice um, works best in, in my view. And then obviously building up elements like technicals and whatever, but really have that foundation view um, that comes from um, the macro fundamentals. Okay, yeah. Um, so when I started digging a bit deeper into what you do, I thought it would be a really nice compliment because... Um, like you said, a lot of people are kind of just focusing on the technical analysis side of things, which can go very deep into, you know, like it's like an endless hole to learn um, all, all different types, different, you know, types of TA. Um, so does, so I'm assuming then as a trader and the information you're giving, you're pretty much asset class agnostic. You're more focusing on where the opportunity is. You're not sticking to trading any particular market or is that or do you kind of stick, stick to forex and stocks or yeah exactly i mean i mainly express my views through fx because that's probably what i'm most familiar with to be fair um but you know i, I take the thematic view first and then try and attach an asset class to that uh, thematic view the one that will best represent my view um in the easiest way then obviously you know I'm not going to go punting about in some illiquid ETF or some illiquid <laughs> stock just because it fits my view. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I will. I will tend to kind of fit the asset class to my to my view um, rather than the other way around. Okay. So uh, 
I'm, I'm assuming you think a good approach then is a nice balance of fundamentals, being in touch with the news cycle, and uh, some some basic technical analysis to understand what's happening on the chart. Yeah, no, absolutely. I tend to find that um, technical analysis works best for when you're looking to add to a position, uh, and uh, obviously for slightly for risk management. I use volatility measures to you know place stops and, and things like that um, purely because I think that if you're just placing a stop loss based on price you're just kind of subjectively guessing where you should put your risk when the market doesn't really work like that you know okay um, and just very quickly um, touch upon your work at TradingView so um, I've been using TradingView for about three to four years now um, I've seen quite a few different changes over that period of time and it seems like well, I might be biased because I'm in the crypto community most of the time, um, but it seems like crypto, the crypto community is driving a lot of growth and functionality on the site. And is is that the case, or am I yeah, just off? Yeah, most definitely. I think um, the, the the top asset class is FX, and then second is crypto. Um, naturally, because you know, with with it being a web platform and a social platform. And considering that a lot of crypto is, you know, the crypto communities are all pretty much online. Um, a lot of the growth has come from, you know, people sharing charts and, and that kind of thing um, on social media, on Twitter and, and things like that. So um, the crypto community has been an absolute godsend for, for trading view. And um, we, we do thank them a lot uh, for that. But at the same time, you know, we provide an absolutely quality product. I don't think it's matched. Um, from my perspective, and I've, I've been a, a longer-term TradingView user as well, so this isn't coming from a position of, you know, I work for them, so I'm bigging them up. I'm bigging them up purely as a user. Um, so, yeah, we've done a really, really good job over the last couple of months, and the growth has been unbelievable. I think um, from the start of March to about May, we were adding 23,000 accounts a day on average. Jesus. <laughs> Wow, yeah, that's impressive. Massive, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so there are quite a few things I'd like to pick your brains on. Um, mostly the current state of things, I'd say, from a macro perspective, because I think that probably gives some great insight for a lot of people that are heavily focused in crypto. Um, so currently in a pandemic, I'm sure a lot of people are kind of tired of hearing about coronavirus, COVID-19, and everyone's response to it. Um, how how do you see things currently and moving forward as, you know, broad, broadly speaking in the UK um, and just in the, in the in a global sense as well, actually? Um, from the UK, well, I, I'll start with the global sense because that's more to sound. Um, I, I was at the very beginning um, extremely wary of, you know, the, the response to the, the pandemic. I think that the data that we have now has maybe backed that wariness up in terms of, um, you know, the public perception of a, a virus like this. I, I watched a video earlier today um, from, now I'm not sure what he was, but he seemed like an epidemiologist. Um, it was on YouTube, so do take it with a pinch of salt. Showed um, this pandemic up against all others, and there's something called the uh, Gore. I can't even remember the name of the curve. I think it's called the Goretz curve. 
where you see a really, really sharp increase uh, during viral pandemics in deaths and, and things like that and, and you know, morbidity rates. Um, and then it tails off, and that's what we're seeing now. And it's because the virus pretty much kills off um, you know, the, the weakest, and it's a horrible thing to say, but it, it does. And the, the, the oldest people, those with you know, serious medical conditions, um, but then gradually the, the, the rest of the, the, the herd, if you want to say that, I don't, I don't really want to say herd immunity because it's, it's wrong. You know, not everyone is immune to it. Um, but that kind of strengthens the, the whole population. Um, and they were talking about T cells as well. And prior flu viruses has actually provided some resistance um, to, to the, the populations. Um, even if it's not this specific coronavirus. And I found that quite insightful. And again, I'm not sure how true it is, um, but, you know, it does make sense if you consider the data where we're at now. Mm. Um, now, I I don't want to say that it was, you know, um, any excuse to lower lower rates, um, but I do feel that the, the, the lockdowns caused um, central banks to, you know, end up suppressing yields even more, lowering base rates and increasing QE, which is obviously natural yield suppression. And this is mainly as a, to, you know, to combat deflation. But we know that QE doesn't actually combat deflation um, because the money essentially gets stuck in a bottleneck uh, and it remains as idle money, not active money. So that money velocity part of the, the quantity theory of money um, that doesn't actually end up feeding through to the wider economy. There's not, as, there's not actually as many transactions occurring. So inflation doesn't increase. So what we just, just before we move on, could you break that down a bit further? Because um, some people might not have an idea of that concept. So um, the idea is that money's being printed, central banks are buying assets, underlying assets, and then the companies that basically receive that money isn't, it's not being distributed to the broader economy. Is that, is yeah. that what you're saying? Well, think about it this way, okay? So what does the, let's take the example of the Fed. What does the Fed do when they go and buy a treasury bond? They go to the market and they buy a treasury bond from an investor. They swap that treasury bond for cash, okay? What's that investor going to go and do? Is he going to really withdraw that money and go and spend it in the economy? Probably not. He's probably going to go and buy more treasury bonds or he's going to go and buy stocks or another financial asset. Um, so the money doesn't feed down into the economy to increase the amount of transactions, which then leads to, you know, no inflation. Um, and this is why I think if you've been listening to the ECB over the last year or two, Draghi kicked it off in August last year, saying that governments in the eurozone need to do more in terms of uh, stimulating growth. And Lagarde has pretty much been hired to force uh Eurozone governments to do this. She's not a monetarist, you know, she's from the political sphere. Mm. And so, you know, this is one way that the ECB now are looking to influence governments. Um, and, and it's the fiscal route, it's not the monetary route. Mm. They realize that the monetary experiment has failed. Otherwise, inflation would be, you know, five, six percent. Um, instead, now, after all of these trillions that have been pumped in over the last 10 years, we're still sitting well below target. And obviously, it's the same for the Fed as well. This is why Jerome Powell has raised the um, average inflation target. So, you know, um, I think at the moment, the key thing is inflation. 
Um, the Fed have shown their hand. Um, Lagarde has kind of shown her hand today, although I, I still think there should be um, more said about the Eurozone and where inflation is headed um, and what their plans are. They didn't really do anything with the PEP envelope, um, which is the pandemic um, the pandemic relief, um, essentially, which is currently at 1.3 billion, uh, sorry, trillion uh, euros. Um, I do think there will be more stimulus added in terms of QE um, out of the zone. But um, there's also this talk of the euro being too high, which is great for me because I'm short the euro. <laughs> but uh, they've, they've kind of, she kind of walked it back a little bit today. But um, I think there's going to be more comments over the coming days about that because uh, it doesn't sit well for Germany. Germany need that lower euro. Um, that's that's a whole kettle of fish we could go into um, for Germany and the EU. Okay, um, so you mentioned Jerome Powell, and I think you're touching upon his comments recently when he's trying to target a high rate of inflation. He, he was he was it was a bit wishy washy. He wasn't he wasn't saying anything for certain. He was basically saying, I think to paraphrase, that they're going to try and target in some some circumstances more than two percent or more than three percent or whatever. Um, my my. My issue with this is if you look at some of the data of banks' effectiveness, central banks' effectiveness is actually targeting inflation. They've been completely poor um, yeah. and missed target consistently. So what what do you think are the impacts of them, their approach to trying to over-target inflation potentially? Um, or if it, is, it, is it even in their interest to hit their targets, basically? Um, it is in... It kind of is in their interest to um, get inflation higher, purely from a debt perspective, I guess. Um, you can inflate away the debt with higher levels of inflation. Um, if it, I guess it, then it depends politically and how harmful it would be to the economy. Um, debt levels are naturally pretty high at the moment. Um, and I think for a short period, they might, might like to overshoot that just to reduce the debt levels slightly. It's basically debt cancellation here. Um but um, it's so tricky to say, you know, because we haven't had higher levels of inflation for a fairly long time. I guess in the US they were running it, you know, just above 2% for a little while. But um, globally it's been not, not that high. It's not been like 70s, 80s levels of inflation, you know. Um, people have been calling for hyperinflation for ages. And it just hasn't happened. And I think it's down to that mechanism that I described with money velocity not being able to increase. Um, uh, Druckenmiller, Stanley Druckenmiller yesterday, though, he, he came out and said that um, he would expect inflation higher. And when he talks, I tend to listen because he's just so damn good. In the same sentence, though, he did say that he could expect deflation as well. Uh, so I guess it just matters about time period. And it's very difficult right now to make an assessment in my view because we don't know the extent to which firstly labor markets are addicted to the fiscal support and obviously then how how addicted the greater economy is to uh, is to fiscal support um, and what will happen once things like furloughs end once all of these different programs that have been created through a pandemic what will happen then um, we obviously know markets are addicted to liquidity because they keep throwing tantrums whenever it is, is reduced, you know. Um, 
So well, I, th I think it is literally a wait and see time. This that stupid word unprecedented um, that that pops up all the time, doesn't it? But um, we are in unprecedented times. Um, whether this modern monetary theory experiment will work itself out, where you know the Fed are funding government and, and that kind of thing, we'll see. But could lead to massive inflation in the midterm, I guess. Um, I just don't know. I honestly don't know at the moment. Hmm. That's 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 a pretty fair uh, fair fair uh, uh, view of things, actually. Um, it's, a lot, okay. it's a lot of words to say. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so one what I probably touch upon as well, just very shortly, is where you can see the next potential bubble or market pitfalls at the moment from a macro perspective. Because I did feel before the pandemic maybe from last year we were just the way the just the way the stock market was operating actually u.s equities were operating that it just it just felt it felt very unnatural that you know it just the bubble was inflating and that there would be some kind of correction mm -hmm. um do you where do you see at the moment anything i know you just literally just said it's rather unprecedented time but do you see anything that could be a potential future pitfall that could be the, the next thing uh, in the near future or, or distant future, that could be not catastrophic, but have um, quite negative implications on broader economy or people's holdings. Or yes, um, my view on the banks is that um, there there could be really really big issues if the US goes goes negative. Um, the reason being is that banks, um, Wall Street. Um, they operate on net interest margin. That's how they make profit. And that's basically the difference between, you know, their assets and liabilities and how they, how they make money on lending. Um, if this goes negative, then they're facing a really, really kind of grave issue. Um, and it comes down to their uh, core equity tier one capital. Because I think people will want to start shorting banks. Um, if you, if you look at the bank index, we've not actually broken the 2007 high and we're trading um, at about 50% of the range from 2008 or 9 um, to that higher previously. Um, they're not very, I mean, they make money, but, you know, if that, if that, uh, if that rate goes negative, then I, I really, really do see issues there um, with Wall Street arising. Mm. And I think that a lot of the regulations post um, 2007-2008, um, in terms of bank capital adequacy, they, they've, they've kind of hidden and, and made murky quite a lot of things on banks' books. Um, in, in Europe, for example, you can hold sovereign debt with a zero risk weight. So you could hold Italian BTPs even though it's Italy could, you know, blow up um, and become kind of a failed state. Mm. Yeah, banks don't need to hold any regulatory capital against those. So things like that I, I see an issue with. And I guess it comes down to the ECB backstopping it. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if, if Wall Street goes, then it's likely there could be, you know, a pretty, pretty bad liquidity crisis. And that is really what brings down um, economies. When when liquidity dries up on the interbank, that's that's really when you see a, a major crash. And I guess that's what we saw back in in March. Mm. 
and that's why the Fed had to open up their dollar swap lines to other central banks, just purely to allow the facilitation of credit for the so that, that leads on nicely to my next question, because you mentioned if the U.S. central bank goes negative, the Fed goes negative. So, I mean, obviously, most central banks everywhere else seem to be um, negative at the moment with their base rates. Um, bank of England, I think the base rate is point, point 0.1 or something ridiculous. So everything's trending, everything's trending negative, basically. I mean, do you see, can you see the like, like the Fed and... Uh, and uh, Bank of England going negative in the next couple of years because I think it's probability-wise it's, it's leaning towards yes potentially. So, well, I, I guess if you look at um, if you look at real yields, we we already are negative. Um, let me just pull up a chart of um, real yield. So, if you look across the curve on U.S. Treasury real yields, you know. Five year, it was trading at negative one spot three nine percent. Seven year, negative one spot two six percent. Ten year, negative one spot zero eight percent. Twenty year, negative zero spot six seven percent. Thirty year, negative zero spot three nine percent. So we're pretty much already there in terms of rates. Um, factor in inflation now. Obviously, if we get deflation, those could could spike up. Um, and we did see a yield yield spike just after Jackson Hole, didn't we? Um, but yeah, I've, it's naturally got to be the the way that everything's pointing now. Um, central bankers, and it, it comes back to that liquidity addiction. Central bankers are addicted to it. The the markets are addicted to it. Um, but what could be a big issue is if you know the participants in the wider economy just say. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of my house costing so much money or to buy a house costing so much money. Um, I'm sick of this company not being able to raise wages because it's effectively a zombie company. You know, all of these different things could amount to people saying, fuck it, let's go and smash it up, which I guess is what's happening. <laughs> but for a different... So it's, it's funny, yeah, it's funny you, you touched, you mentioned that actually because I do feel... Like a lot of the protests at the moment with a lot of young people, I don't know. It, it seems like they perceive a future that's rather bleak because you know it, they're basically lumbered with a bunch of debt, student loan, just so much going on that it is kind of manifesting in riots. And I mean, there's yeah. potential, strong potential for more civil unrest are you generally speaking when you know when the economy is tanking quite consistently or countries going through some difficulties expressed through civil unrest so yeah i think uh, mm. from from that perspective i think you've you've got to look at the different um the different people that are protesting here okay so antifa or however you want to pronounce it cunts is probably a better word <laughs> they they tend to be okay more middle class and they tend to be people who are middle class who um probably expect more than they're worth in my okay that might sound really really harsh but i think i think it might be a good way to frame it um they're the ones that are really doing the rioting here 
And um, yes, they, they might not be able to afford a house. And yes, it's pent up anger. Um, but then you compare it to maybe, you know, your working class person who's just trying to get by, who also can't afford a house. Um, I think when that happens and they start to get extremely, extremely angry, that's when we'll, we'll uh, really reach a breaking point. I don't know if it's anytime soon. Um, but if, you know, people are decimated in financially to the extent where, you know, the everyday person is really, really angry at, say, the Fed, for example, which is really the true cause of inequality. It's not governments. Mm. I, think, I think people should be protesting their central banks, not governments. And, and this nonsense is going on. I mean... Um, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, we saw, I mean, we saw a bit of that with um, Occupy Wall Street, but it did feel a bit like... Yeah, I mean, Occupy Wall Street didn't know what they were actually protesting. Yeah, it's like it's like it's it's like they knew that they knew they're in the general area of you know <laughs> what they should be doing, but just directed the wrong wrong bunch, maybe. Yeah, I mean, they were a few hundred miles away from where they should have been. They should have been, you know, a Capitol Hill in Washington D.C. and outside the Fed. They shouldn't have been on Wall Street because, mm. at the end of the day, Wall Street are just provided ability to go about causing mayhem. Um, if, if they weren't allowed the ability or the moral hazard um, was, wasn't there, then, you know, they wouldn't have done what they'd done. Um, but it was there. So that comes from the very top, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, d I don't know the true extent to, um, to, to, to what, people, what people's knowledge really of monetarism is. Mm. Um, I think it really should have been displayed over the last 10 years that with every decrease in the base rate, your house price is, is going up for absolutely no reason. Mm. You've got to start, maybe it's not government that's causing this, you know? Mm. Okay, so uh, just probably touching upon the next bit, um, which I'd like to cover, which is Brexit. That's another topic that's... Um, I know personally I've had a lot of fatigue with the last couple of years. Um, I've noticed in the news cycle, um, Brexit started popping up again. Um, so uh, what are your views on the UK, Brexit, uh, the pound, the euro, um, potential no deal going forward and just getting just getting out of, <laughs> getting the fuck out of Europe? Um, yeah. I mean, you know... I'm, I'm happy with the no deal because I don't think it would necessarily affect my life that much. I don't think it would affect most people's lives that much, in, in all honesty. Um, however, there are obviously those tail risks that can pop up where things do totally go to shit. Now, I, I don't think they will. And I think the EU have largely been bluffing um, till now. For example, you haven't really heard much about the, uh, the city of London um, being under that much threat mm. because it's been a massive red herring. And it's been a red herring because those arguing, um, uh, you know, for banks to be relocating to Europe and stuff like that, they simply don't understand the business of the city. They firstly don't understand the regulations and they don't understand what the city does. And the city really is there to conduct wholesale business with other banks who largely will sit outside of MIFID regulations. Um, they, they sit inside them, but largely outside because, for example, 
if you're doing retail banking, you need branches in the EU. Okay. If you're doing, um, say, I don't know, if you're just doing trading or running investment services, all you need is, is a subsidiary within the EU. So people have gotten confused over what an EU hub is and what a European hub is. The European hub is going to stay in London, but the EU hub will maybe have a small office, say for, I don't know, JP Morgan in Frankfurt, and that will be able to allow them to service the whole of the EU like they already do. Um, they might need to move a few staff over, but it's not going to be like the 10,000 billion staff. <laughs> hmm. uh, but it just goes to show you how easy it is to drum up, you know, ideas about things when the general public don't understand stuff. Um, and I only use financial services as an example because the UK is such a service sector, a uh, service-based sector. Um, an exporter of services and financial services is um, a large large portion of that um, I'm not I, honestly I don't understand some of the trade stuff the trade regulations I've looked at some conversations on Twitter with uh, trade experts and I don't have the fucking foggiest about some of the regulations and stuff they're talking about so I tend to sit out of that one um, but I, I do know from the financial services side but it's been a massive red herring, massively overblown, and that's why we're not hearing that much about it at the moment. Mm. Um, so uh, I'm just staying cognizant of time because we might be running over a tiny bit here. Um, so what? Uh, what? let's get to the crypto stuff just because that's probably what most of my audience want to hear about. Um, so um, what, are your, what are your views on Bitcoin as an asset class, onto it, well, crypto as an asset class onto itself and Bitcoin? Um and Bitcoin versus crypto, Bitcoin versus on crypto versus other markets. Um, do you trade Bitcoin? Do you hold Bitcoin? Or? Yeah, I, I tend to. So I accept payments um, for Macrodesiac in Bitcoin. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah. So I've, um, I've, I've, uh, you know, I kind of hold half of the payments that I receive in in Bitcoin. So I do hold it, mm. um, but also I accept. I, kind of transfer half of it into fiat purely from a risk management perspective and purely to have liquidity for the business you know um, I think that Bitcoin as a as an asset class is very similar to um, the bimetallist um, era in the 1800s where people were were understanding that they wanted to break away from the how do I put it Kind of like the institutionalized nature of money, if you want to put it that way. Now, I don't think Bitcoin is maybe the best um, digital asset out there in terms of it being money, because I guess it, it can take a while to confirm a transaction, all of this stuff. I'm sure there's, there's things that are faster out there. But as an asset class and as um, kind of the initial maverick to be there, um, in the space, I think that it's, it's very much got kind of a legacy um, attached to it. Um, something funny that I've seen recently is people saying that Bitcoin's dead because all of these other coins that are doing like 5,000% in five minutes. It's total bollocks and it's just hysteria over something that's moving a bit quicker. But that something that's moving a bit quicker doesn't have the liquidity. It doesn't have the you know, uh, the volume going through it, and it just doesn't have the narrative attached to it. All financial assets 
are are just narratives. Um, they're made up of what people think of where price should go. Um, and as an asset class, as long as there's a narrative attached to it, it has value. That's why does gold have a value? It doesn't, unless you're going to use it in jewellery. Um, it's you know it's it's totally valueless. But people have a narrative attached to it that you should buy gold if X Y Z happens. If you think that there's going to be inflation, for example, mm. if you that the world's going to end, you buy gold. Um, there's 9.3 trillion dollars of gold that is paper traded, and only 40 billion dollars that is actually physically traded. Mm. So people are just trading narratives. They don't actually care about holding it for any real reason. Um, and that's something that we always have to remember. And I think in the crypto space, people um, people are very, very tribal. But you always have to remember that all you're doing is trading the narrative. Hmm. Um, so just to tie it back to what we were talking about earlier with central banks. So central banks have... We've had a few rumors, rumblings that central banks are going to create their own digital currency. And my kind of perspective on this is that money is already digital. What unique qualities could a central bank crypto potentially have? Um, do you have what are your, what are your views on uh, central banks creating crypto? Or so um, I guess you you'd have to break money down into the different components. So you've got M M zero, M one, M two, M three. Uh, and I think you've got M4. Yeah, you've got M4 as well. So um, but some of those monies, I guess, are uh, digital and some are like coins, cash, etc. Um, back in 2015, Andy Haldan, who is the chief economist of the Bank of England, he expressed a view um, where the Bank of England might um, introduce a digital currency to impose negative interest rates better on the economy. And I think it comes back down to that um, that money velocity argument that I was I was referring to. Mm. If Bank of England are able to kind of track transactions, etc., um, and and see the extent to which money velocity is is occurring in the economy, either decreasing or increasing, they might have a better kind of view on where the market is, inflation is is headed. Um, so it's, it's merely a way to impose uh, rates on the consumer and, and economic agents better. Okay. And um, so uh, can, can you see a central bank ever buying large portions of a cryptocurrency, for example, like Bitcoin? Um, I think not too long ago, I think this year, Russia started buying large quantities of gold or maybe last year. Um, can can you see can you see any any central banks doing the same with the crypto, or would they just simply create their own so they can control it? The I think it's the Bulgarian central bank. They um, they, they held or they bought a load of crypto. Uh, I think oh really? They, yeah yeah yeah. Sure. Double check that. Um, so had an idea yeah and I've, uh, i'll be honest with you i've kind of started tuning well for like past three to four months uh tuning out a lot of a lot of crypto news um and just news in general just because so much fatigue it's just on on loop so yeah so i didn't hear about that it's cool it's pretty cool maybe it's, uh, maybe it's fake news because bitcoinist.com is saying that it didn't but when i saw the news article it said it did um i guess maybe they might have, uh, what do you call it, um, 
Would you put it when they seized it? That's that's the one. Oh, uh, okay. So they might have seized it, but um, yeah, maybe that's what it was. Um, going into the market and buying Bitcoin, I don't see why they would. Um, maybe because, that's, because that's quite a strong narrative for the next phase or later phases of Bitcoin with mass uh, hyper-Bitcoinization. Like, I don't know if you know uh, Plan B's model. Um, I think he's one trillion Bitcoin or one trillion USD on Twitter, but he has a stock to flow model. And he's saying that Bitcoin is going through these different phases. And one of the phases will be nation states buying large quantities of Bitcoin. Um, I think that's quite a large leap um, yeah. just because <laughs> just just because, you know, this market is extremely small versus something like gold market or and anything else basically so um yeah what i mean do you do you, do you see that as a possibility or well um the bank of international settlements settlements which is basically the central bank of central banks um i don't know how many people have heard of them in march 2018 they released a paper on uh central bank digital currencies which i would i'll probably advise loads of people to to read um and the main takeaway from it was that, yes, there's interest, but it depends on uh, which, which kind of direction you're coming at it from, whether you're looking at it from wholesale side or you're looking at it from a general purpose uh, central bank digital currency. Um, for example, um, one, of the, one of the lines from it is the um, issuance of a CBDC, so central bank digital currency, would probably not alter the basic mechanics of monetary policy implementation, including central banks' use of open market operations. Um, so I think essentially it might just be a way just to facilitate things slightly easier rather than actually influence anything in, in monetarism. Mm. I'll link you to the so you can, you can drop it in, um, into the, the notes or something. Okay, cheers. Thanks for that. Sweet. Um, so, uh, yeah, definitely run over time. So just to finish off with, bring it back to Macrodesiac. So what are your plans for Macrodesiac for like end of the year or upcoming future? Is there anything big on the horizon? Um, it's always interesting getting a perspective on someone who's firstly created something off their own back, but also is online. It's entrepreneurial. Um, it's always interesting just to see what you've got up and coming. Yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're really looking to scale up the um, amount of information that we provide on a daily basis. Um, we really want to keep people on the beat of markets, whether it's, you know, um, fixed income, FX, even crypto. Um, and uh, we're probably going to be adding one or two more people to our, to our staff um, just to make sure that everyone's, everyone's nice and happy. Um, I'm really just plugging away at, at different avenues because we understand that people learn in different ways, whether it's via video podcast, mm. or, um, just reading things. We just want to cater for everyone um, while still keeping that same kind of uh, conversational tone to things because I get a ton of bank reports through every day. <laughs> yeah. I read them and I feel like shooting myself in the face. And I just... I don't think you need to word things in such a boring way to describe highbrow topics, you know? Yeah. Nice and short, 
um, make it easy to read and just get to the point rather than talking a load of shite. Yeah. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Yeah. And um, and is there anything else you're working on as well? Or is it just macrodisiac for the foreseeable future? I don't know. Might start something tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> something takes my eye. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, um, just got to say thank you so much for, you know, doing this today. Um, if you need anything, please feel free to reach out. Um, and for those listening, if you'd like to follow David on Twitter, please do. His Twitter handle is macrodesiac underscore and the website's macrodesiac.com. There's lots of free goodies on there. Um, definitely check out his, uh, his uh, website just because I think it's extremely reasonably priced for what you're getting. So, Thanks so much for joining me. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll do this again sometime. Cheers, mate. Cheers, James. No problem.